everyone, and thanks for tuning into this episode of the Connecticut Certification Board's podcast, Scope of Practice, where we really strive to address topics that are often overlooked, underappreciated, or just not widely known by SUD professionals. If you're returning to the podcast, the podcast, welcome back. And if you're a first-time listener, we hope you continue to join us. And frankly, it's about time. This episode is sponsored by Amy Sedgwick Counseling, located in Connecticut's beautiful Litchfield County. Using an eclectic approach, Amy strives to maintain a very simple and important focus, building recovery for a lifetime. You can find out more at amysedgwickcounseling.com. The inevitable truth of our existence is that life is filled with ups and downs, and along with all the happiness and joy will come sadness, anger, pain, grief, disappointment, and none of us are immune from that negative. Often, our automatic response is to try to eliminate or suppress these experiences, which can often be counterproductive to our overall well-being. Today, we'll discuss a therapeutic intervention that is designed to help people adapt to these difficult and very common challenges. This intervention is has been called transdiagnostic in a 2017 study in the professional journal Neurotherapeutics, and it cites empirical studies that show its effectiveness. The treatment is called Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, or ACT, and our guest today is a seasoned and skilled clinician who has successfully integrated ACT into his practice. Ian Zetterval is a person in long-term recovery, a veteran of the U.S. Army Infantry in the Gulf War, and licensed professional counselor with significant experience in working with people with substance use and mood disorders. He is a results-oriented clinician who has incorporated ACT into his practice with an enthusiasm and energy that is contagious. It's certainly been my pleasure to speak with him over the past couple of weeks to learn more, not just about ACT, but to share our experiences as clinicians. Ian, welcome to the show. Hey, Jeff. I'm really glad to to be here. I appreciate your kind words in that introduction. Well, let's just jump right in because I'm assuming that a good number of our listeners may uh, have not heard or know very little about uh, ACT. Can we start with describing acceptance and, and commitment therapy for the audience that hasn't been exposed to it yet? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would describe, if I had to, to describe ACT in, in a nutshell, very briefly, to someone who has is unacquainted, I would describe it as it, it's a behavioral therapy. So mm-hmm. it comes from like the 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 school. If you look at um, counseling theory as, as a tree, behaviorism is a branch. And from that branch of behaviorism, so initially it was like the B.F. Skinner, the, the Skinnerian behavioral approach, uh, classical conditioning, operant conditioning. And then from that, built on that branch, you get um, the cognitive behavioral therapy and the rational emotive uh, behavioral therapy. And then from that branch, you get uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, DBT, uh, mindfulness, cognitive behavioral therapy. So what I would call that branch, if that, if that branch had like a theme, it would be like the, a mindfulness theme. These are, are, are this, this idea of, of, of mindfulness. In a, in a clinical context. Uh, and, and, you know, as, when I was a young clinician many, many moons ago, things like REBT were commonly taught. Um, and, and this is just kind of an outgrowth. Uh, so it shows that we as a field are developing and always looking at, at new opportunities to help uh, the people that we work with. Would you mind sharing kind of the genesis of ACT and, and who it was designed to treat? 
Yeah, it was the gen- the, the person who's considered the founder. I think he refers to himself as a co-founder to really not say that he did it on his own. But it was Stephen Hayes, who was a, uh, a faculty member of in the, the University of Nevada in the 1970s. He developed this idea of the, he, he, th- this was like the genesis of ACT. And he was actually dealing with his own. And he's he he speaks freely about this. You can see there's a lot of good material that's available for free online where he gives talks about the fact that he was someone who was dealing with a panic disorder himself. And he was attempting to apply while while a, 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 while he was a, a faculty member of the, the, the psychology department in a, in a university. And he he was attempting to apply, you know, he was teaching uh, CBT and he was providing CBD treatment to clients, but he was finding it that he was unable to, to, uh, find success applying it to himself. And so he had kind of explored that to see, you know, just to have like a different approach. And that's where that, the, the mindfulness, uh, the, the idea of acceptance and mindfulness, as opposed to challenging, uh, irrational thoughts, just accepting them, accepting, discomfort and uh staying with it and the thing that he did was which we appreciate is he really put it to the test he developed this theory in a very similar way to the founder of uh um dbt mm. which I, I i which i am not all that familiar with but i know that it was a it was a woman who was also in the university system i think it was university of washington yeah. and Marshall she had a hand in washington Marshall. okay right and she had uh, experiences with, um, I think she was actually in the Institute of Living as a teenager. She dealt with, uh, I think she was diagnosed with schizophrenia and uh, she left the Institute of Living and when she was 18, got into academia. And in a similar way, she was treating uh, uh, suicidal patients. She was trying to apply CBT to people who had this uh, suicide ideation and attempts and was finding it, I don't want to say lacking, but it, it, there was, it, there was, it wasn't as effective. And so she kind of explored that and came up with, and she was also a practitioner of Zen. So she also, so it kind of happened. Uh, there was a confluence in the 1970s of these, these two individuals separately developing these concepts, but then also putting them to the test, like putting them under scrutiny of clinical study to, to show that they're effective. And Colonel, let's jump ahead a little bit and talk because as you referenced DBT, I received a a significant amount of training um, in the mid '90s on DBT, um, and was able to to learn a lot of the skills and practice it because I was a social work intern, and they said let's give the social work intern all of the folks that have borderline personality disorder so he can have the headache and you don't have to you know what they those things they call significant learning experiences to interns but uh but i was incredibly grateful for it and as as we were talking the other day and and acceptance uh, of the feelings that come and uh how it is based in eastern philosophy that that it comes into its very zen um, but I also see some differences. Um, and, and do you see differences between the two? Yeah, I, I do. I do. I I think from a philosophical standpoint, like the the understanding, and and so if, if I speak on DBT, it's really me not 
not knowing all that much about it. So, but my but my understanding of DBT is whereas it does apply the the mindfulness approach and acceptance and mindfulness, just from a, like almost a philosophical standpoint, the the the, the basis of it is um, see is where I need to. Not sure if I'm, I'm saying it correctly, but there's like an, antithesis and 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 thesis, and the idea is like um, synthesis, right? And that's like that's the maybe you can speak a little bit more on that. Yeah, things I, that's like radical that. acceptance that it is what it is. These emotions right. are going to come. You just take that, um, and uh, you know, again, mindfulness, being aware of, of kind of what's happening in the moment. And uh, self-soothing exercises and mm-hmm. things, and I don't think I see that as much in, in what I've learned about ACT over the last few weeks. That kind of self-soothing—it's—it's it's more about—and and you'll talk about flexibility. But the one big difference uh, that I see is we see DBT used with a lot of different populations, but mm-hmm. it was not designed for that. It was designed for a very, very specific population. Those. Uh, with borderline personality disorder and, and parasuicidal or suicidal behaviors. But what we see is that growth. But her test subjects were very homogeneous. So the, the success of it really, uh, I would say, is unusual, mm-hmm. whereas ACT was designed to be uh, a cross you know, trans-diagnostic. It helps many, many folks. Does that seem to make sense? Yeah, and I'd say the difference is um, so ACT is would would be considered process based. Not it's not there's not a protocol. Right. It's not, and it's it's actually symptom reduction is not the primary purpose of of ACT. The primary purpose as a as a um, like my role as a therapist is to increase the the human potential for deeper meaning and purpose Mm -hmm. it's not symptom reduction usually symptom reduction if if, if a person describes themselves as having troubling symptoms if they connect to to uh behaviors that that if they're engaged in in experiences that they connect with with a a deeper sense of meaning and, and and they have a general sense of purpose typically the symptoms will reduce, but that's secondary. It's not primary. So it's not like somebody presents and, and usually people will present in treatment like I am doing, you know, my anxiety, I have these panic attacks and I want to get rid of them. Like we, the, the work of ACT isn't so much to get rid of the symptoms. It's it's about the, the mindfulness um, interventions to lean into experiences that that create a, a greater sense of meaning and purpose it sounds like what you describe it's a very buddhist approach because the buddha had talked about suffering is is a part of life if not a major part of life um that you, you just accept that as opposed to uh i i think dbt comes from more of a Taoist approach where things are just what they are mm-hmm. and, and don't fight against it um so there's a little more acceptance, I think, overall, uh, that it's part of life with ACT. When I was looking up some information for myself, a term that kept popping up to me uh, that I was unfamiliar with is relational frame theory. 
Is that something that you can describe for us? Uh, relational frame theory. It's I, I, when I when I hear when I've done trainings. It's it's a very technical. It's the let's see if I can explain this. I, I almost like the metaphor of a, the, a, a car engine versus knowing how to drive. Like it's like a person can drive a car their whole life. They could be you know 16 years old, get their driver's license, drive anywhere and everywhere for their entire lifetime, and not necessarily not have to know like the 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 structure and the workings of uh internal combustible engine yeah relational frame theory it, it is in, in the same sense a person could understand act and, and and learn more about act and even like be a pr- practitioner of act without necessarily needing to know the underpinnings of of like 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 the like a, like a car engine like a person could drive and, and know very little about the engine I I find it very interesting. So, but it's but it is it is complicated. It, it is it is it's very technical, and it, and it goes it kind of goes back to the idea of act being a behavioral therapy, a, a behavioral approach. Where and behavior, if I could define behavior, it's um, it's something that's called it's called radical behaviorism. So yeah. a radical um, behavior is anything that a species can do. So it's not just outer observable behavior. It's also like, do humans think? Yes, we do. So thinking is behavior. Emotions are behavior. It's all, okay. it's all, it's all behavior. So relational frame theory is basically it's the role of human language in creating um, relationships without direct ex- directly experiencing it. Okay, that makes sense. One of the things that also uh, it, it, that I sort a lot of uh, was the six core processes of ACT. Now, what are those six processes? We have um, acceptance. Let me just back up a little bit. So the whole idea of, of and, and again, this is probably where where there's a, there could be a difference uh, in in ACT versus DBT. ACT sees uh, psychological problems stemming from psychological inflexibility. So everything in ACT is about moving away from, to to increase psychological flexibility. And so all the the, the core processes, processes are all in that direction. But like you said, there's six that are identified in, in its acceptance, cognitive diffusion, Selfless context, committed action, values, and contact with the present moment. And every every um, process has like it's almost like a, on a spectrum. So you have on one end, so you, you could take all six and say, okay, for acceptance, what's the what's on the what's the polar end opposite of acceptance is experiential avoidance. Mm-hmm. You know, you have cognitive fusion movement from from cognitive fusion to cognitive diffusion uh committed act values versus a, a lack of values clarity so you're all it's um contact with the present moment versus or away from com- conceptualized past and feared future so it's a staying in the moment and all all these interventions are kind of geared toward that to see identify okay where is this client becoming fused cognitively where are they getting caught up in these thoughts and and buying into them and believing them and it's and it's causing 
um, them to to suffer. So one of the things you talked about was, you know, values, clear uh, uh, the values that you give the opportunity to people to explore their values and, and kind of see how they play a role in their thinking. Yeah, exactly. You're trying you to identify that. The, the values. Sometimes I like have an example of, of different values. because I think that could be a little bit of a loaded term. People hear values and might think like, what is it? Moral values. And that's the thing about act is why I, what I really appreciate about it is it's not looking at behavior. It's, it's, it's this theory of uh, context, contextual, func- functional contextualism. So all, mm-hmm. all behavior, and like I said, there's radical behavior. So even thoughts and feelings, things that are going on inside a person's skin and outside. There's private experience and then there's you know overt behavior. But all behavior is understood. If you put on a, a, a lens if you put on an act lens, what what how you view a person's behavior is not that it's right or wrong, good or bad, true or false, or broken or or mal or or malfunctioning. It's it, we have to see behavior in this context, and all behavior serves a function. And that's how, as an act act act, act practitioner, you're observing a person's behavior. And your, your, the question is like, what function does this, does this behavior have? And and behavior and context interact with with each other. Right, yeah, that like, I get. I can see that real clearly. Is the way you, you describe it is it serves a purpose in the moment. What is that purpose? Let's take a look at that. Um, now, one thing as a a lot of the interventions that folks that work with substance use disordered individuals they're manualized right everything is kind of linear and we know that substance use disorders and recovery is not linear people have good days and bad days regardless of where they are in recovery um we're not looking at these six core processes as things that you address in a linear fashion right well first we're going to talk about this and and focus on this and then we're going to focus on this it's it's kind of the interplay of all and and dealing with them when they arise that's correct right there's no it's not it's not linear usually I, i start people off with just introducing the concept of of cognitive diffusion and 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 acceptance but you could with with each person I'm working with, I could kind of see it's like that process is the process based where it's like mm-hmm. I'm observing and I could identify we're, we're we're evaluating the behavior and 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 understanding the context in which the behavior is occurring, and then the question is, you know, is it working? All behavior has a function. It's not about right, wrong, good or bad. It's about workability, and you're trying to just see like, okay, let's how do we develop a different strategy. Like maybe this strategy worked in in the context of of a past, you know, experiences, but is is it still working now? And if it's yeah, not like working, that. then how do we how do we develop a different strategy? It's truly non-judgmental because you're not saying good, bad, or indifferent about it. It's it's it's, it's the behavior served the purpose. Is it still working? That's it's, it. It's uh, and if it's still working, they probably wouldn't be there right if it was because that's where the people get stuck um i like the fact that it, it's non-judgmental and i like the fact just from our, our, our brief conversations that you're truly meeting that person where they are at and what's happening with them in the moment as opposed to saying no 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 that's not what we're going to talk about today the book says we're going to go and and we're going to do this exercise 
And mm-hmm. that to me makes it incredibly value uh, valuable. People are not linear beings. We think we are, but everything is a process. Uh, so it's important to focus on that. One thing that interests me greatly uh, as a clinician is, is the ambivalence of clients. So if somebody uh, uh, comes and, and you're discussing ACT with a brand new client, how do you help them move forward? Should they be kind of contemplative about, is, is this what I want to do? Or maybe a bit into kind of preparing to, to make some changes in their lives. I think that that's like, like what you said about being non-judgmental, explaining like there's no, it's not right, wrong, good or bad, true or false. It's about, is, is it working? Is what you are currently doing working for you in a way that's getting you what you want in life? Are you connecting to your values? Are your behaviors congruent with the, your values orientation? <clears throat> what a, a lot of people will will see, and again, it's very non-judgmental. This is just looking at it like, okay, let's look at it like this is every we all all behavior serves a function, and we have we develop these strategies and we develop rules. And the question is like, how, is it working? And it's not, you know, it's like, how is it working? Is there a way we where what adjustments can we make to make it work better? So it's really based in real life and real life experiences um, rather than hypotheticals and things like that. And exactly. And, and it's, and it's about more of the, the relational frame uh, theory. Like I said, it's, it's rather complex, but it really comes down to the element of, of, of how we use la- how language affects our learning and how we develop rules. And then we ask, our, and then the question is to evaluate non-judgmentally, but we evaluate like, okay, what what is the cost and the benefit of of following this rule? Like somebody who might be dealing with like a severe um, opiate use disorder, they will there'll there'll, there'll be a rule. I, I I can't be sick. Like that's the rule in their mind. I can't be sick for work. For, I mean, who wants to be sick? But that that's a rule. They're they're very attached to this rule. Like I cannot. Be sick, and by sick, they're meaning like you know they don't mm. want to go through withdrawals. In withdrawal, and yeah, and that's a very strong motivator, and and that's where you see like the role of language. Where if somebody is on, I use you know I've heard this many times. Somebody would be on sitting at home in the evening, and they'll start to like their eyes will start watering, but in in their mind they'll think to themselves like I'm I'm going to be sick, and then they'll start. Their their use their dialogue and you know they're using language. That's how we think. We think in language. It's not about what the experience is in that moment. It's also it's magnified and amplified because a person starts to think like I'm not going to sleep tonight. I'm going to be I'm, I've got to function for work tomorrow. I got to drop my kids off. Like I'm going to have like diarrhea. I'm like, they're they're just amplifying. They're churning out all these not just what they're experiencing in that moment, which is unpleasant in itself, but it's also being amplified through this thought process. And then once they love, they'll, you know, text somebody or they'll, they'll reach out in a way they'll make a decision, an action will be taken to, to get opiates. And, but before they, if it's a text, let's say it's a text message. Once they send that text message, what, what, what is their experience is they feel better. And I think that that internal dialogue that we all have um, in my last podcast, we talked with uh, a naturopathic physician where we talked about the gut-brain axis, where 
they both affect each other. But what we think certainly affects our physical and, and mental well-being. Um, and as I look, and, yeah. taking somebody who may, who's has a period of, of recovery, um, when they're faced with the behaviors that the actions that they have taken to kind of maintain that not being sick, I can't be sick. All of that comes very often into conflict with their own personal values. Uh, and I can imagine that being a big part of, of what you may see with someone with a substance use disorder history. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, and that's where you get the um, actions that are in complete, completely um, contradictory to one's personal values. But people will think, oh, this person must not care about his family because there he goes, you know, topping, you know, doing whatever he's doing. But it's not, it's not looking at, it's looking at the behavior, it, <clears throat> excuse me, but it, if that person does have that value and they act contrary to it, that's going to crush that self-esteem. That's going to make a person feel ashamed, guilty, and then ashamed. Where it's like, it's not so much that they don't value their their relationship. It's just that they're being driven by this rule that they can't be sick and then getting into this compulsive behavior. And that's a, that's a, a big part of why I, because my most of my experience working is in the field is in substance abuse. And it's just this idea that, you know, I don't know if I'm being dramatic, but if, if I were to say a, a million people, millions of people, maybe not millions, I don't know, but many, many people woke up this morning and their first thought was, I'm not going to do blank today. Fill it, fill it, whatever the blank is. I'm not going to get high. I'm not going to go get heroin. I'm not going to go to the casino. I'm not going to go on. I'm not going to smoke a cigarette. I'm not going to jump on online porn, what, whatever it is. Like that's what that, that's their thought is. I'm not going to do that today. And they mean it in that moment. But at some point in the day, they'll do they'll, they'll do the thing that they said in the morning they won't do. So my interest was like, what 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 happens there? Where what where is this transformation? Where a person wakes up hungover saying, I'm not going to drink today. And then two o'clock in the in the afternoon, passing a package store, the wheel turns and it's like what goes on there? What is that? What is what is that inner experience that a per, what is the experience? What is the inner experience that's, that goes on where that desire becomes so strong it just overpowers? And then a person tells himself something different. They told themselves in the morning, I'm not gonna do this today, but then they get they get that compulsion, they have this inner experience where getting whatever it is, call we call it a craving, satiating that craving. It's overpowering, and then it's like, oh, I'll do it t tomorrow, tomorrow, I'll do it tomorrow, and putting it off. It's life is a series of moments, and we have to pay attention to what's happening in the moment. And if that thought is, I can't be sick, I can't be sick, I can't be sick, and that's been there, there's a chance that's going to take over, even with the best of intentions, because you're dealing with that in the moment, and it's hard. And, and like, like you said, like about like, like helping working with a client there might be some ambivalence to it trying to see that a lot of people's strategy not only doesn't work it's it, it uh it's counterproductive 
it's you know they're they're saying like okay what happens is like i i i don't want to feel anxious i i i i i get this anxiety so so when you start feeling anxious what do you do oh i start thinking about it so and, and what happens to the anxiety oh it just goes it goes it goes through the roof so it's like okay so it has the opposite effect yeah it's it's counterproductive absolutely trying to control the the control narrative like the thought yeah. is like i want to control my i, I come to fear i want to control my anger i want to control my anxiety okay well ha, have you been trying to well yeah well what, what have you been doing to control your anxiety what anger they explain it and then is it working well no it's not <laughs> it's not working at all <laughs> so a lot of our listeners work in environments where the, you know the acuity of, of client need related to substance use disorders they're often their primary task we recognize that that stability is kind of that first thing that we're looking at is is act something best approached once that acuity has waned and the risk of crisis may be lessened i i, I think uh, it could be introduced very early I mean, it's really is about kind of like that moment. If somebody is reporting a desire to to discontinue, like they they understand what it's costing them. They understand continuing to act in this way, especially when you're dealing with like a substance abuse disorder, active substance use. It's starting to introduce these 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 the, the, these concepts early, because even when they're actively using to try, because the intervention is like. Um, if you have a thought of, oh, I want to drink, and then a person starts to struggle with that drink. No, I'm not trying to drink. I just got to pass. And then the more they struggle, the stronger it becomes. And then they just, and, then, and, then, and then they act on it. And then that's why they, and then they wake up remorseful saying, okay, I'm not going to do it today. And it's like over and over and over again. You can start to introduce these, these, uh, these interventions where you're starting to just notice. Like I'm noticing myself have a thought that I want to drink. But what what is that thought? And that's like the mindfulness, like paying attention to the to the direct experience. And even again, kind of back to that RFT, the, the relational frame theory about a person will say, uh, I feel like I feel um, inadequate, like, let's say. And I would always kind of tweak that a little bit to say that you, you, you're having a thought that you're inadequate. Because like, what is inadequacy? Like, what is what? How does you how do you feel inadequate? Like what is what is the feeling of inadequacy? I'd say it's a thought. You you this thought you, you you're having a thought that you're inadequate. But if mm-hmm. you if you fuse with this thought and you like like become one with this thought and you buy into it and believe it, now there's a amplification of an emotion. Whereas like you could just change the relationship and just say, okay, I'm noticing this thought. Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. So you're just you're kind of neutralizing the thought. You, you know, you're trying to just using mindfulness to say, oh, I'm noticing myself. I, I, I want to smoke a cigarette. Like somebody who's trying to quit smoking or right? whatever it is. I'm, I'm, they notice the thought instead of the process typically goes. I want to do I want to I want to I want to go to the store. I, I want to man, I want a cigarette. And then you start to battle with it. And then you try to problem solve. And you'd be like, well, what if you just smoke one and then and then stop after that and say, OK, so. You engage this problem solver, which involves a negotiation, which which usually ends with the acting on it. Whereas we just have this posture of I'm just noticing a thought of wanting to drink or wanting to fill in the blank. So the language can take the power away from 
that overwhelming where someone gets enmeshed with the thoughts and feelings and just saying, oh, it's just a thought. It's uh, it's it's less powerful. It's less powerful. And then you kind of get into like the feeling of it. Like if you notice the thought and then and, and then pay attention to the sensation, it's like attention is a spotlight. And when we take the spotlight off of the thought onto the sensation mm-hmm. and kind of sit with it, like because the, the thought is like, oh, this this craving is building and building and building. And uh, I, I, I'm trying to fight it. But then I oh, it's just too much, too powerful. And, and then you act on it instead of just making space for it and noticing it, being like a curious observer. Like I'm noticing myself have a craving for fill in the blank. Take a deep breath and then focus. Or I do it with like people with anxiety. People say like, oh, I'm, I get really anxious or I'm anxious. And, I'm, and I say, well, what what is anxiety? Like you had this inner experience and your word to describe it is anxiety. And you, it's been determined that this, you, you, you the, the rule is this is bad and you got to get rid of it. But like, what what is anxiety? Like when you notice when and, and, and then noticing it in the here and now is like, okay, I'm anxious. I'm having a thought that I'm anxious. I'm just noticing myself having a thought that I'm anxious, and then turning that attention on the actual sense because anxiety is a description of an inner experience. But then you focus on what 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 is the experience? Like where am I feeling the anxiety? Is it a tightness in my chest? Is it a butterfly? Is it like a fluttering in my stomach? And you're just like. Not trying to, you're not actively trying to get rid of it. You're just sitting with it. Mm-hmm. And then maybe like taking a couple deep breaths and like making room for it. And then you noticing like with a with a drug craving, it comes and it goes. It kind of like it's like it's like riding a wave. It's like that wave kind of builds and it crests, it kind of levels out and then fades away. And then five minutes later, it's like I'm not thinking about, I'm no longer. I no longer have this experience of a craving. Like it came and it went. I'm thinking of that in, in a very common way as well. One of the things, as you're describing it, one of the things that I'll do is I'll read something in the newspaper and I'll get pissed off and say, I'm writing a letter. And I think, I feel like I'm going to write a letter. And I and I think that's how I experience it. But after, it just is what it is. And after a few minutes, I've read another story. And in that moment, I'm reading another story um, that I'm not having a response to, and I've forgotten that I want to write a letter about what John Doe said. Uh, right. I, I know it's not the same, but similar. Absolutely. You mentioned like media, like we're so, we we communicate, we use language to communicate reading stories. I remember I was just recently, I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready to take a, 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 an exam to, to better my, um, I'm looking to get panel doesn't matter but I'm, I'm i'm preparing for this exam and it's uh case studies so i'm reading i'm going through i'm, I'm reading hundreds of case studies going through it and it says you know uh you know mary is a 33 year old woman with three children who who comes to your, your clinic because xyz and then you have to answer questions like what are the things that you know going through all these case studies like and, and answering these questions so i've read hundreds of them Two of them were like a really scary scenario, like to me personally, because it was like the person who presented. This is like this is like a made up person. It's not like a real thing, but it said that this, the the parent came to therapy distraught and despondent because she witnessed two weeks ago she witnessed her nine year old daughter being struck and killed by a, a car in her neighborhood. 
And like, I'm reading this and I, I'm a parent. I have small children. And like, this thought comes to my mind. Like, I gotta, I gotta be careful. Like, I gotta tell my kids about like looking both ways. And like, you know, like I just had this and I, and I notice anxiety showing up. I'm like, why am I, why all of a sudden am I, am I experiencing anxiety? thinking about some, uh, this terrible thing. And that, and that's, that, that's what it is to have access to information. Like we, we're, we're constantly, we have all this access to information, news. We we're, we're privy to the fact that really tough things are happening to people all over the world. And I think we automatically uh, create these uh, associations like, Oh, if that happened, that, that could happen to something me or somebody I care about. I, you know, I just completed doing a, a three-session uh, exam prep course for our exam. And what you're describing and, and it's kind of how I went about it without knowing. You know, people go in with this feeling of test anxiety and what is it? And we talk about looking that each question is just a question. It's one thing at a time. It's unrelated to the next. And take it at that moment, just focus on that question. And so it is. It's a series of moments. It's mm-hmm. 150 moments, but it, and with I, it's just funny as you describe that. Say, oh, that's how we teach test prep. That it's don't think of the greater, because it's a series of questions, and you've got to answer one question at a time. And that's the idea about like like exactly what what you said is this idea of staying staying in contact with the present moment because that's the only moment that we could take an action in. We could think about the past. Things are going to remind us. We can't help but think about things from the past, but we can't do anything to change it. The past, the past is the past. You can't change what you ate for breakfast this morning. You can't change what you said ten minutes ago or ten years ago. And also, with the future, the future is a is a mystery. And we could always think of what if this happens? What if that happens? What if I fail the test? What if you know all these outcomes? Even like a positive, even something that's good. You think to yourself like, oh, I want ne- this time next year, I want to buy a, a house, and that's like, oh, that's a good goal, something to look, look at, look forward to. But the more we dwell on it, the more our minds will offer us unsolicited possibilities of something bad happening. Oh, what if I lose my job? What if what if the economy goes down? What if this happens? What if I get sick? You know. We want to stay, notice those thoughts. We can't control our thoughts, but we want to notice those thoughts, but like consciously bring our attention to the here and now, because that's where, that's the only time we could act. And we could ask ourselves, is there anything I could do right here in this moment to, to make the, to make the situation better? Like, so is there, is there any uh, action I could take? Because in the, if you think about the future, you can't do anything about all those, the past is done. It's, 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 it's history. Tomorrow, Anything in the future, you can't do anything about it until it arrives, and then it's not the future anymore. Now, then, then, then it would be the present moment. When you talk about where our mind goes, oh, I'm going to fail this test. Oh, I better pass this test. Um, I had a guest on uh, a couple of months ago, a psychologist, research psychologist from Texas A&M, who called those things attentional biases. Mm. That it's normal cognitive functioning. But it's kind of it's it's, uh, it's a normal cognitive process, but we'll hang on to something and our attention will automatically go there. Um, and we have sometimes we have to unlearn to get our focus to go to that. I'm going to fail this exam. I'm bad at exams. I stink at exams. I'm going to do, 
that's just something that our mind takes us to in the moment. It's a normal cognitive action, but it has devastating results if we don't address it in the moment. In the moment, right. And that's the idea of like getting into this posture of just uh, I'm noticing myself having a thought that I'm going to fail this test. But it's just a thought. Thoughts come and go. Like, what, what can I do about it? Is there anything I can do about it right now to make that less likely? Is there, is, and that's the thing about the mind. The, the mind, it's not our best friend. It's not our worst enemy. Because some people say like, oh, my, I, I am my own worst enemy. Like, my mind is my worst enemy. I, I say, I say it, our mind isn't our worst enemy, but it's also not our best friend. It's just a problem solving machine. And we have these, we have this automatic ability. We use language, internal language to describe, problem solve, no, describe, evaluate, and problem solve. And in a lot of in a lot of cases, that 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 that's workable. That's helpful. Like if I if I'm sitting in my home and I smell something burning, something burning. Even if I'm by myself, I think in my mind, if I'm with somebody, I might say something. But if I'm by myself, in my mind, I think to myself, I have a thought of something. It smells like something's burning. That's the description. I'm describing my environment. Something's burning. And then I evaluate. Okay, is that good or bad? That's bad. And then I problem solve. I take action. Okay, I have to find where this burning is happening and get rid of it or, 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 or discover it and, and, and address it, get rid of it. That 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 works. That's workable. If, if if we didn't do that, a lot of a lot a lot a lot of uh, houses would burn down. Now, internalize that. Some people have this experience of, I'm having anxiety. That's not good. I got to get rid of it. And then it's like, what 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 is available for them to to get rid of it? Or I can't get sick. Or I'm starting to feel sick. If you're talking about withdrawals, I'm starting to feel sick. That's really bad because I got to get up tomorrow. I can't stop working. I got I got to be you know able to do my job and problem solve. Okay, what can I do to not be sick? And, and I a, think it's a, difficult to to be aware of that at times because all of this stuff is happening in the blink of an eye in mm, our brain. Uh, right, it, it's working so quickly, uh, and we also over time we train ourselves how we're going to create responses in our head over and over again. Um, one thing that's important for me as, as a trainer, and I'm very lucky I get to go around the country and talk about different things, is I tell folks, even if you're not going to use it, and if you don't like it, especially if you don't like it, learn why you don't like it, or learn what it's about. Learn things that you may not utilize because it can be helpful. So why would someone need to learn about ACT that works in this field? I would call it just a tool and it's it's a good tool to have. It's I've come to see it as what led me to act and what what led me to be interested in act and to continue this interest and to want to learn more is I've come to see it as the most effective way to to help the clients that I work with. And when I think like, you know, you work with clients, definitely, especially clients who are like in, in, in really tough spots. And it's like the, to, to, to think very often, frequently, to frequently think about like, what can I do to help? What can I do to help these guys? Like, what am I, you know, we meet however long or however, the, whatever the context of, of the work, whether it's rehab, whether it's an outpatient, whether it's a group or whether it's a, my individual private practice. It's like, okay, I have this time, I have this time, I'm client facing. And what what can I do to to 
what can I encourage them to practice that's going to make the biggest difference? And I've come to see it as this 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 process of 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 psychological of, of helping them move toward greater psychological flexibility through these through these core processes. And and I I think for clinicians uh, for especially in the field where we have many who are less than masters prepared who do great work. Um, but having the idea and understanding what something is in case a referral is necessary, this this may be helpful for this individual to have a working knowledge of it, to be able to talk to them about it. And uh, I think it's important that because we have to, to understand that although 72% of, of treatment centers in the country, according to NIDA, are 12-step based, it works for a, it doesn't work for the majority of people. Right. Right. We have to, that. Oh, maybe this is something different that I have to think about. Mm -hmm. Maybe this will be helpful for my in, the, the individual I'm working with. Yeah, and that's like, like you said, it, it, it work. If it works, it works. But there's people who it, it doesn't work, and that's that would be an instance of, um, like I would say, there's a good deal of psychological rigidity in the kind of inherent in the twelve steps. And I'm not. I'm not. I, I for millions of people, it works. Yeah. Like. Don't drink, go to meetings. That's 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 very rigid. That's black and white rigid. Whereas, and that and, and if that works, and that's the, that's the emphasis of act. Like, hey, if it works, keep doing it. Mm -hmm. But if it's not working, then like, okay, psychological rigidity le leaves people uh, more injury prone. It's kind of like physical fit. It's like physical flexibility. Like, if I just got up, if if I haven't done any preparation if i just got up and said you know tomorrow i'm going to wake up and run a marathon like there's a very high probability that <laughs> i will be injured in that process yeah, i would be injured very quickly <laughs> but it, when you talk about psychological flexibility and rigidity that's important for the workforce as well one mm -hmm. thing that i have learned and i had a background working in mental health before i came to the uh, the substance use disorder field uh, many years ago it was with so many people in the working in the field that have their own recovery history, many are stuck in what worked for them. And they mm -hmm. have incredible psychological rigidity about anything else. And I think from a clinician, a professional standpoint, that's a very dangerous. You're going to get hurt because you're going to have more clients that are, are unsuccessful than successful. And because we're offering them something that worked for us uh, and doesn't necessarily work, won't work for them. So I, I like the idea of, of, I'm fascinated by the, the psychological flexibility. Uh, that might be something I have to work into uh, some training and stuff that I do. Well, that's like what the, uh, you know, and then what, the, what, what, what do you commonly hear is, is blaming the client, you know, like, Oh, they just, they haven't hit their bottom yet. Or they're, they're, they're in denial. It's like, as far as like, if you didn't take this, oh, don't drink all the meetings and work with a sponsor. And like, if they don't do that, it's like, well, you must be, you're, you're in denial. You haven't hit your bottom yet. You're not ready. Yeah, we throw non-compliant in there. When non we're, or maybe we're non-compliant with meeting them where they're at. Mm -hmm. We're expecting them to meet us where we're at. And it's it's difficult. And I love talking about that stuff with, with uh, uh, clinicians that are learning. And, you know, before we finish up, uh, anything you'd like our audience to know? I can't really think of anything. I uh, I think that I, I okay. I, I can't think of something. Even 
even understanding a little bit about act, like do it for yourself. Like do it. It's it's helpful for that's like that that trans uh, diagnosis. It's not about like yeah. a diagnost. It's not a protocol for a specific diagnosis. It's just it's about leaning into experience that create meaning and purpose in a, in a, in, a, in a deeply in uh, enriching life. And like, who doesn't want who 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 can't use some of that? And like being curious about these 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 this uh, this mindfulness and and psychological flexibility. And that's the other thing. That's a big important part too. Is that we're all to, on this kind of spectrum of of psychological flexibility and, and rigidity. And we all benefit by practicing to increase psychological flexibility. Great way to end. Thank you. Uh, again, again, Ian, thanks again for spending your time to us. I know your schedule is busy. Uh, and I know that Thursdays are your busy days. So you were swamped yesterday. <laughs> thanks for getting up early and having the time to record. Um, and I hope we motivated individuals to learn more on their own. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. You're welcome. That's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. Again, a special thanks to Amy Sedgwick Counseling for sponsoring our discussion. And you can learn more at amysedgwickcounseling.com. And she is taking referrals. We here at the Connecticut Certification Board certainly appreciate everyone who's listening. Don't forget to follow us on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast application. Until next time, everybody. 